All right, all right. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Today is week three of our Advent season, and we're going to be talking about the subject of the promised life, like Brother Brad has already introduced to us this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, will be like our campsite for today. But we're not there yet. We're parking the car. We've got some things to do before we get to the campsite. So as we can remember from a couple weeks ago, the Advent season can be summed up in this one sentence. Advent proclaims the sufficiency of Christ through the discipline of waiting. It reminds us of and it preaches the sufficiency of Christ. That means he's enough. He is what you need. You don't need anything else. He's sufficient. And it proclaims that through the discipline of waiting on the Lord. And waiting is not an easy thing. Waiting is one of the hardest things that humanity has ever been tasked with. But waiting is pervasive. Waiting is everywhere that you look. And waiting can be some of the most heavy, painful things that we experience together or alone. Y'all know the world waits too. Even people without hope wait. People all around the world are waiting on things small and large. And I was reminded of this um, with actually an art installation that's happening down in Washington, D.C. So there's this beautiful image that kind of helps to sum up what we talk about when we talk about Advent being a season of waiting. So look at that. There's In Georgetown, there are several nighttime art installations that happen every year in the month of December. It's called Georgetown Glow. And this is right there on M Street, close to the water. And this one is just simply called waiting. Other things are more Christmas oriented. Other things are just winter. But this artist decided to talk about and to express the theme of waiting through this symbol here. Are y'all familiar with that symbol? It's probably a source of frustration to any Apple user in the room, seeing that symbol. Here's the description of that artwork. We can all recognize the rotating wheel that appears on our computer and phone screens when we have to wait for something to download, to buffer. How many of y'all just love the word buffer? Really? (laughs) To update or to reboot. We see this as we wait. And the waiting symbol illustrated in this artwork consists of lines in a circle lighting up one by one, spinning, 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 waiting on a thing. And this classic symbol can oddly reassure us. It seems to say, don't click away. Don't close the app. Just wait a minute and you're going to be rewarded. Something's working and going on in the background, and we know it's taking a minute. But if you'll just wait for this app to do what it's going to do, we'll reward you with another picture of like Baby Yoda or something like that. But you have to know that the waiting will be rewarded. Every last one of us, no matter what we believe, looks for hope in the midst of waiting. So even the principles of technological design show us that you have to have feedback in the midst of a wait or you're just going to give up. Our patience is so short, and I could talk about the 21st century and how short our attention spans have become, but people have always needed feedback and their flesh has always grown weak and impatient in the midst of a wait. 
everyone waits. Sometimes for things that are very small, very trivial, but sometimes for things that will change the trajectory of your life. And you can't do anything but wait. And you want more information. And you long for it and you pray for it every single day. But you have been appointed to wait. So what do you hope for? What do you hold on to in the midst of the wait? Everyone needs to hold on to something. And everyone, by their nature, will reach out and grab a hold of something. And as believers this morning, we have an absolutely reliable foundation to build our hope on, to build our weight on. Reminds me of the old song. My hope is built on nothing less than what? Right. It's built on the cornerstone of our faith. It's built on the Lord Jesus himself. And so this morning, that brings us to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And our main point for today, if you don't get anything else, this is the main point. Every area of our lives should be built on and aligned with the Lord Jesus. Every area of our lives should be built on and aligned with the Lord Jesus. And that particular wording will make more sense as we continue to talk about Peter's imagery in the passage. So let's read the text, starting in verse 4. Here's God's word. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The scriptures say, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And they also say, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is our text, and this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. So our flow of thought is not going to be very linear this morning. And so some of you guys are like, oh gosh, let's put the seatbelt on. Like, we're not going in order. This is going to freak the type A people out in the room. Like, we're not going to go from top to bottom in the text. And normally, a top to bottom flow would be the most helpful thing, and it would be the thing that I would like to do as we preach, because whenever I think about us doing this thing that we're doing called a sermon, I'd like to think of it as us opening the text and studying it together and having a lot of the principles of what we do right here being able to transfer into like Monday morning when you open the word. I think of it as like us studying the Bible and you like watching me study the Bible and then you transferring those principles so that you can understand the book when you open it a little better. That's kind of like what I'm hoping for. 
And so whenever we do this, I like to do things top to bottom because that's hopefully how you're going to read it. <laughs> when you open it, hopefully you would start at the beginning because you would understand it a little better. But for the sake of our, I know, <laughs> for the sake of our concept this morning, I want to start in the middle and I want to work our way out toward the edges. For the sake of understanding the root of what's going on, I want to show you why I want to start in the middle and work our way out. Kind of like eating an Oreo. Like, do y'all eat Oreos like that? Like you break it apart, you start in the middle. Yeah, I know, a house divided, that whole thing. <laughs> so I want to start in the middle because in the middle is where you find the truth about God. And so philosophically, when we're looking at scriptures and we're looking to, to determine what it is that we're supposed to believe out of the book, we look at what does this text say about God? And then after we understand what it says about God, we can better understand what the text would have to say about us. Because I can so easily open the Bible and say, tell me something about myself. And I need that. Because apart from the scriptures, I'm not going to know anything about myself. But you have to understand the truth about God before you can ever move to that. Your perspective will be distorted without that. And so in the middle of this text, that's where we find the truth about God. So John MacArthur has this commentary on um, the style of Peter's writing, and this may kind of help you understand what's happening. He says, Peter is not like Paul, if you haven't discovered that yet. Peter is not that logical. He's not precise, concise, or sequential. And everything can't be easily outlined, and it doesn't flow in perfect order. Peter's writings seem to be a bit more emotional and sometimes scattered. He makes a point, goes back and makes another point, then comes back to his first point, and then sometimes he gets a little hard to track. And so in this section, we want to organize it and show you how to learn what does this say about God, then what does this say about us, and then what's the purpose of this text. So our outline today will be this. One, we're going to look at the preeminence of Christ. Then we're going to look at the privileges of the believer that flow out from Christ and who he is. And then we're going to see the threefold purpose that's presented in the text. So let's start with the first one, the preeminence of Christ. Look at verse 6 again. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. How many of you guys know anything at all, like the bar is super low? How many of you know anything about building? How many of you have worked on your house? How many of you understand Lincoln Logs, maybe? Anything about the concept of building? And so I'm learning this as a pretty new homeowner. I'm like tinkering around with little stuff, but in no way have I ever built anything. I'm like slapping paint on stuff. I don't understand how the building stands up. So we're talking about um, the cornerstone here. You have to know how vitally important it is that in the construction of any sort of structure, of a cathedral, of a capital building, of your house, of the doctor's office, things have to be in alignment. The foundational elements of that building have to be set with care and precision. Before you look at anything else, before you pick out the curtains, before you furnish anything, before you hang stuff on the walls, the most care has to be taken with aligning and setting the foundation. The cornerstone needs to be laid with the highest attention to detail because everything else takes the line from that. 
and that's the picture that's given here with a cornerstone. So it's the first stone that gets laid in the building, and from there, you see the line coming out this way, and then you see the line coming out the opposite way, and then you see even the vertical nature of the building being determined by how level and precise the cornerstone has been laid. Alistair Begg says that in the architecture of first century Israel, the cornerstone would be the first to be put in place. And if you ever go to Jerusalem and go to the Wailing Wall, and you look down into the foundational of that original Solomonic temple that's there, you'll discover that somewhere way down in the depths, that one of those huge, massive stones, by definition, had to have been the cornerstone. And that stone was placed in first. And it was put absolutely accurately so that all the other stones would be flowing out from the line and the foundation that was given. The angle of the walls and the nature of what was built would all be based on this. That makes sense. You ever done a series of things and you didn't do the first one right? And there's this cascading effect that occurs because your cornerstone is off. And Jesus is the cornerstone in this text. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. You may remember this. Jesus talking to the disciples. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this passage is one of the most famous passages in the book of Matthew, and one of the most famous in the New Testament, and it's also been plagued with multiple interpretations and disagreements as to kind of like the objects and the direct objects. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And people argue about what rock is this rock, and then they make different arguments that for centuries and millennia have caused division in the church. But Peter didn't get it wrong in our passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is acknowledging that Christ is the foundation in, in so many words. So you have Peter writing an epistle after this, calling Christ the chief cornerstone, making it abundantly clear. And so you see that Jesus is this foundation that we look to and that, we're, that all of the weight of the building rests upon and that without, the building would have no order whatsoever. When you need direction, when, when, you're, when you need calibration, where would you look? You look back toward the cornerstone. And not only was Jesus called the cornerstone, he was also called a living stone. Literally, the word for living stone, that stone word is the word lithos. It's translated like a stone used in a building and a stone that gets chiseled, that's hammered and sawn in order that it might fit perfectly in the edifice of the building. And of course, in ancient times, they built buildings like that and oftentimes Mortar wasn't even used. They just had to have such precision and, and the stones had to sit on top of one another in a way that 
they would not come loose. And so extra care had to be taken for everything to line up completely and perfectly. My point is this. Jesus was a stone with a purpose. He had been hewn out in a certain way by a certain person for a certain job. And he had come to this earth on a purpose from his father. It's an interesting image, that of a living stone. A stone with purpose, but a stone that also has life and and continues to minister. So Jesus is the cornerstone. He's a living stone. And Jesus is also an inspected stone. So multiple people have taken a look at this stone, and especially a stone as important as the cornerstone would have a bunch of eyes on it. It would need a bunch of approvals before it would ever make its way to the position of cornerstone. It would need to be a solid stone. It would need to be able to be chiseled perfectly to fit there. And if any imperfection was found in it, that one rejection would take it off the block and they'd have to find something else. And so you have multiple people in this passage looking at the stone and giving their evaluation. So take a look at this. The cornerstone has been inspected by God. And in God's sight... Verse 6, he calls the cornerstone chosen and precious. Chosen and precious. God takes a look at this stone and says, like in Matthew chapter 3, this is my beloved son, and with him I am well pleased. I have chosen him for this purpose, and he's precious to me. But God was not the only person to inspect that stone. The religious also inspected Jesus as a potential cornerstone. And they came to a different conclusion about him. The text says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So when the religious looked at Jesus, they made a different assumption and a different evaluation. John MacArthur says, Now the idea here is that here came the leaders of Israel, wanting to participate in the building of God's glorious spiritual temple. And in looking for the cornerstone, the Messiah, Jesus came along, and they examined him. And with all of the fine view that they could muster, and with all of the angles they could perceive, and with all the measuring instruments that they had in their religion, they assessed the suitability of Jesus to be the Messiah who would set the cornerstone for the spiritual kingdom of God. And when they had concluded their assessment, They concluded that Jesus was not adequate, so they rejected him. As far as the Jewish leaders were concerned, he did not pass their calculations. He wasn't what they were looking for. They were working on a building, but that building looked so completely different than what the Lord had in purpose for the temple. And so when you look at Jesus, is he chosen and precious can, we, can our hearts resonate with the Lord when he says, this is my beloved son? Or do sometimes our hearts resonate with the religious, seeing the incongruity of, of God with what we end up valuing in our lives? Even though at times we can see a discrepancy between maybe what we're stating as belief, Jesus is the cornerstone, and what we're living as belief, which would be a way that's incompatible with 
with Jesus being the foundation? Where, where is your heart in terms of resonating with that? Does he fit in? And are you willing to chisel away? Are you willing to let the Lord chisel away in order for him to be the cornerstone? So we see the preeminence of Christ here, setting the angles and the lines in every direction for all of the universe. And then out from that flows the privileges of the believer. Only after we understand God and what he's revealed in this text can we talk about the characteristics and the gifts that that God gives us at all. So look at verses 4 and 5 with me again. The very beginning of the passage at verse 4 says, as you come to him. So that's the very beginning, setting it off like that. As, As you are coming to him, initially in salvation, as you come to God. It it reminds me of Matthew chapter 11, where he issues an invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. He issues the invite out. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He puts that invite out there. We know that you can only come if the Father and the Spirit draws you. But this invitation stands as you come to him. And then down in verse 5, it says, as you come to him, you're also living stones being built up as a spiritual house. So we see, I could sum it up like this. When you come to Christ, by definition, you become like Christ. There's no coming to Christ and retaining all of your preferences. There's no coming to Christ and retaining all of the pet sins and all of the the things that God asks you to give up. There's no coming to Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. When you come to Christ, you become like Christ. MacArthur continues, Christianity is the only religion that I know of in the world where the life of the one we worship becomes our life. You never heard of anybody being in Buddha or in Confucius or in Muhammad. You've never heard any of them teach that the life of that individual is the eternal life which is possessed by those who worship that individual. But in Christ, we have the life of Christ. We're partakers of the divine nature. Think of Colossians chapter 3. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so when we come to Christ, we receive the blessing of union with Christ. There's so many other blessings that we could talk about in this message, but I want to just dwell on that one and allow it to encourage and bolster your faith. When we come to Christ, we become one with Christ. We become the same nature of living stone that Jesus is. We become the same sort of material. We are partakers in that divine nature. So think about it like this. As, as a stone being built up into the spiritual house, think about the journey of this stone and how much direct impact the stone's actions, feelings would have on its own destiny. Think about this. As a stone, God would be quarrying you out of the pit of your own rebellion. He would need to break you loose with a crowbar from the enslaving grip of the devil. 
he would have to put you on a cart and haul you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, like it says in verse 10. After that, you would quickly arrive at the church and be fitted into the house that God is building to proclaim his name throughout the earth. But wait, even though God has made you a living stone, there's more work to be done to make you into a stone that will fit into God's house. Through the sanctifying chisel of God's word, the Holy Spirit, and relationship with brothers and sisters, you get hewn into a shape that aligns with Jesus and aligns with your brothers and sisters. You get set and calibrated with that precedent-sitting cornerstone. And in the midst of all of that, coming out of the ground and being hewn and fit into that building, how much of that is our own effort and how much of that is master craftsmen working on things that we have no power over? It's a humbling thing to think about. You have God rescuing you out of things that you have no power over. And then even as a Christian, even as somebody joining up and covenanting with brothers and sisters, it takes the sanctifying revelation of God's word and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, the input of brothers and sisters, as you strain along with that in order to be hewn out and to fit into the building. You can't do this on your own. Where does Lone Ranger Christianity fit into that? We need God and we need each other. And we're totally dependent on God's word for this. So the metaphor kind of breaks down a little bit because at the same time, you come and you're fitted into the building. You join up. You, you covenant with the church. But then after you're fitted into the building, the Lord's still working on you. The Lord's still chiseling off those parts, right? How many of y'all have felt the chisel lately? Those parts that don't line up, those disobedient parts, those parts that maybe you didn't even realize were all that bad, and God was just taking it easy on you, and then he reveals it to you. Here comes the chisel. Being fit and calibrated with the cornerstone. So we see the privileges of the believer mainly being unified with Christ and with the church. Let's close with the threefold purpose here. So there are three parts in this passage that lend itself to seeing ultimate purpose to what Peter's writing about. So it's important to understand things about the scriptures. Not everything that you're going to read on every day of your Bible reading plan is going to give you something to do. Does that make sense? It's easy to, to come to the Bible and say, just give me something else to do, Lord, and I'll do it, and I'll feel better, and I'll be closer to you because I did that thing that you asked. God doesn't make it that easy. That's not what it's about. And so this passage is not full of imperatives. That's not what we're looking at. But there are statements of ultimate purpose in this passage. So God blesses us for a larger purpose. Amen? God doesn't just bless us in order that we would feel happy in this moment. Although he loves us enough to do that. He loves us enough to give us gifts that do increase our joy right now. But that joy overflows into a sovereign and wise purpose that just emanates to the ends of the earth. When he blesses us, he blesses us as part of an ultimate plan to bring more glory to his own name. And so we see statements of purpose throughout this passage that kind of tip us off to the last day. 
and tip us off to what God is ultimately doing here. So look at verse 5. It says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So there's a purpose there. We're quarried out. We're, we're being built up into a spiritual house in order that we would be a holy priesthood. Later on in verse 5, to offer sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then for the sake of time, we'll just go ahead and skip down to verse 9. It says, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, beautiful things, beautiful blessings that God gives to us. And then you have the word that, that implies purpose. You have these things, these things are bestowed upon you, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's really easy for me to read that as just a list of gifts that God gives me. And that's a legitimate thing to do. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession, and I've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. When I became a believer, that's how I read that verse. Here are five things that God has done for me. And it's a beautiful thing, and I couldn't do that on my own. But I forgot the purpose in the middle of there. I just skipped over that and went to, I got called out of darkness, which is a wonderful thing. But it says, all these things are here and exist so that you may proclaim the excellencies of the one who did it. And the blessings are here and existing so that the praise gets amplified to the ends of the earth. It's not about our comfort. It's not about a religion that just seems to fill the gaps. It's not about an opiate for the masses. It's not about any of that. It's about God sovereignly blessing people in order to make a case for his own glory. None of this is about us. We're not here this morning for ourselves. Although God loves us enough to remind us of truth that will reorient us for the next week. We're ultimately here because we need to amplify the name of Jesus. So we see these three purposes here. As we're drawing to a close, I want us to think about the cornerstone. All of us are founded on something. What is that thing? Well, let me tell you about what St. Patrick's Cathedral is founded on. How many of you guys have ever seen St. Patrick's Cathedral? It's a beautiful place. It's in Midtown Manhattan. It's right across from the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree and the big guy, Atlas, holding up the world. And it's a very iconic place. And you always see the tree and you always see 30 Rock. But then right behind 30 Rock in the tree is St. Patrick's Cathedral. It's huge. It's beautiful. It was made in 1860, and I want to tell you a little bit about what happened whenever they built St. Patrick's. It's a quote from the New York Times. Much is known about the cornerstone of St. Patrick's Cathedral. As the Archdiocese of New York embarks on a five-year, $175 million renovation of what has been described as the nation's, nation's largest Roman Catholic Gothic sanctuary, Architects and historians have meticulously reviewed every detail of the original blueprints. 
So in 2012, they went to renovate. They have learned that the cornerstone was hand cut by Cormac McCall, a 22-year-old Irish immigrant. It was laid on August 15, 1858, on the Feast of Assumption by John Hughes, New York's first archbishop. 200 priests and 100 choir boys marched in the formal procession, and as the cornerstone was laid, the throng of onlookers was so thick, 100,000 strong by one estimate, that all the city streetcars were diverted north to accommodate the crowd. Downtown Manhattan was described as depleted. Everyone was there. Everyone wanted to see what was going on. So here comes the speech. Here comes all the pomp and circumstance. The cathedral takes years to build. They have all these records of everything that happened on that day. And in 2012, when they go to renovate, they can't find the cornerstone. They don't even know where it is. Many cornerstones are prominently marked with the date that construction began. Some identify the builder or architect. Most are in plain sight, appropriately enough, at the corner of the building, but not so at St. Patrick's. Messenger Ritchie of St. Patrick's Cathedral says, quote, we have no idea where this thing is. Actually, there is a vague idea. Thomas G. Young says, we know it was at 50th and 5th Avenue, but exactly where? We don't know. And this guy has written several books all about the building of this cathedral, and they don't even know where the first stone was that got laid. So of course, they can figure out how to do renovations without that. We have technology now. But where in the world has this most important preeminent stone gone? The point of the story is this. If they cared that much, they'd find it. They could dig it up. It's probably underground somewhere as things get paved and paved and paved. And if it was that important and they dug long enough, a cornerstone could be identified. In our own hearts, sometimes it takes a little bit of digging to really understand what's important. And sometimes there is a gap that happens over time between what we say that we believe and what our hearts are actually practicing. And sometimes we gotta get the shovel out and we have to figure out, Lord, what am I treasuring the most right now? Lord, what are my hopes and my plans? What are my desires resting on? What's destabilizing all of these things whenever it changes? That might be your cornerstone. Can your cornerstone shift away from hoping in God to things like a desire to control circumstances that are out of your control? For me, it can. Are there places where, as believers, the Spirit can reveal to us this morning as we study the text, your hope is not in God like it should be? Things are, things are causing you to be a mess and to be destabilized because your hope is being built on something less. What is that? Only the Lord knows, and only searching the scriptures and talking to your brothers and sisters can help us to know that. But we do know that above everything else, everything needs to be aligned with the cornerstone of Christ. And we worship a God that's been gracious enough to reveal himself in detail, in the word. It's been gracious enough to lay it all out there. 
and to give us the invitation. Come to me if you're weary, if you're heavy laden. Come to me if you haven't been here in a long time. Come to me if you've been out of alignment, worshiping idols, holding on to small things for years. Come to me if you've never come before. Come to me if you're doubting. Come to me if you've been looking for some time and now my word is breaking through. That's his invitation. Would you come? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of your word. And we thank you that you take the pressure off of us. That you don't require us to climb the mountain of righteousness in order to reach you at the summit. This Advent season, we worship a God that descended the hill, that came to us in our weakness, that empowers us, that makes us alive apart from any of our own efforts. But God, we confess to you that we still try to do lots and lots and lots of things in our own strength, and that our hope shifts to things that we can see and touch and things that feel rewarding right now. God, forgive us when we become short-sighted like that. Lord, help us to return. Help us to turn our eyes on you, to look full in your wonderful face, and by consequence, allow the things of the earth to grow strangely dim. Lord, help us to reorient ourselves for your own glory and secondarily for our own good. Lord, there's no hope in anywhere else that's actually going to pay off. So we ask that you would keep us, preserve us. We pray this in your name. Amen.